53.12, we read, starting out with the word, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of the soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Does anybody, can anybody give an answer what it means it pleased the Lord to bruise him? Does anybody know what that means? What that leads to? Why would it please the Lord to bruise him? What is this alluding to? It, 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 absolutely. Yep. Pointing to that. To that, to that incredible event coming. That, that, that this is an in, incredible prophecy going in. Matthew? Right. It's a sacrifice for our sins. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Well, well, but wait a minute. It seems to me that there's just one presence that's here in this statement. That there's only one. Is there more than one? Is there something that we can learn from this? And I know this is this really baffled the Pharisees about where the, the verse that says the Lord said to my Lord. What is this talking about? Anyone? Well, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So we see, basically, the word Lord is spelled in capital letters. It seems to me, like as we read in Psalm 2, it's pleased the first part, the first person of the Godhead to bruise the second person of the Godhead. Because we know that the, from one of the first windows into a messianic prophecy that we learn is in Genesis 3.15. Can someone read that? Genesis 3.15. I think that's very important for us to read that this morning. For us to understand that. Because Christ is here. I'll give you a window in before you read this verse. There had to be a substitute for us. And one that could satisfy the judgment of God. And one that could free us from the curse of the law. Do we have the power in and of ourselves to atone for our sins by our pathetic works? Anyone? Well, what's worse in that Bible verse? We could discuss that. Is it worse, is, is it worse to have your head bruised or your heel bruised. What's worse? Right. So, if the heel, oh, thank you so much. If the heel is bruised, then there's one whose heel is bruised. That's not too bad. You know, Teresa's been praying, asking for prayer on Wednesday evening because her feet hurt. It's been a long battle, but she's been able to function with the problem that she's been having, and it's much worse than one foot being bruised. Hers has been, she's been in a lot of pain, but she's able to get up and do things. 
I know many of people who have had head, serious head injuries, and many times it kills them. And so that Bible verse that Matthew just read, thank you, is speaking about the head of Satan being crushed. Now, if we don't have the ability, if we do not have in and of ourselves the heavenly spiritual ability to atone for our own sins, then who has the power to crush the head of Satan? Do we have the power to crush the head of Satan on our own? You see where this is connected to the New Testament and the Old Testament with Christ's arrival? I mean, does, can, can you see where this is going? That Messianic Bible verse in Genesis 3.15 says that the Lord will crush the head of Satan. He will crush sin and he will do it. But the only way they're going to be done is by the unblemished lamb, the one who has perfect blood, and this is why we take communion here this morning. So we read the verse we just read in Isaiah 53.10-12, which I, many preachers I've heard over the years said that they believe that this could be called the first gospel because it's such an incredible prophecy for the coming of Christ. It says that he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is a design. This is an incredible design on the eternity of the souls of those that follow Jesus Christ. And what we're seeing here, I find it fascinating as a wicked filthy bag of worms and dust, which is all I am, that it would please the Lord to send His Son to die for me. That is beyond anything I can even comprehend. And I, what I don't get, and I cannot process in my head the people that hate Jesus Christ. I can't process that. Why we have a Savior, though they will celebrate Christmas and Easter and enjoy all the accoutrements, the money, the candy, the food, and all the bread and circuses, but they have no idea what it means, even though basically it's been turned into a pathetic ritual anyway. But the bottom line is, Christmas does exist to remember the first advent of Christ. Easter does exist. And that's usually where I take people that have absolutely no idea about the Lord when I witness to them. That's all they understand about religion today. They understand the peanuts with their Christmas special. They understand some of the other cartoons with the Easter specials. And then you got to kind of start from there, because that's about all they know. And you start there, and you talk about what happens, and you get into deep theology. This here, what we're reading, is deep, deep theology. It's an incredible doctrine. Why did it please the Lord to bruise His Son? Because this is a fruition from the prophecy in Genesis, that Satan's head would be crushed, and the heel of Christ would be bruised. How dare the heel of Christ ever be bruised as our Savior? How dare anyone touch a hair on the head of Christ. It says about Judas, better that it were, that it were, better that it would have been that he would have never been born than to betray the Son of Man. But the thing that is incredible is that he did it. And that he did it is a, is a gift and a blessed, precious thanksgiving that we can never even begin to repay. But he did it with his blood. But with his blood, it pleased the Lord. If there's no pastor. Amen. Perfect. Now that brings up a good question. Do you think Satan knows this? Do you think that he knows that he's been crushed? 
that he's been defeated? Don't you think if, if, if you feel defeated in some way and you know you're totally defeated in an area of your life, it's time to submit and give in and to stop, you know, stop beating a dead horse? I don't believe Satan does believe that he has been defeated. I believe he literally, very stupidly, really thinks that he can still defeat God. And with that, that's why I agree with Pastor Olson that I do not believe at all right now that Satan is bound. I mean, it's pretty obvious what's going on out there, that he's not bound right now. Many believe that. There's many teachings out there that, that say that. But we look through this verse and we see, we see that God's judgment is most dreadful and can in no wise be satisfied by sacrificial accomplishments or the whims of men. We understand that as Christians. So there has to be a substitute. Remember, Isaac had a substitute for him when he was laid out on the altar of obedience from Abraham and they went up three days, and, Ab- and little Isaac uh, says to his daddy, Hey, Dad, who's going to be the sacrifice? And Abraham says, Lord will provide. You notice how Abraham never said, We're waiting to hear how you're going to be the sacrifice. That had been a hard thing for him. He said, The Lord will provide. And there was a ram in the thicket, very same mountain that Christ actually gets crucified on. And there is a, se- there is a substitute for Isaiah, I mean, Isaac, showing us from the book of Isaiah. That Christ is our substitute. We should all be on that altar of of obedience to the Lord. We should have to pay that. And we should do it by burning in hell because that's what we deserve. But Christ emancipated us. He freed us from hell because of this. And this verse is a perfect example of that. Can someone look up Galatians chapter 3 verse 13? Galatians 3.13 shows that Christ has redeemed us. Could the law save us? Could we be saved by the law? That's a very big question, and I think it's been a real entanglement, especially for many Jews over the, over the centuries. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It, 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 you get into the details. We've, we, we've gone through many wonderful details scratching the surface in the Wednesday night prayer meeting for many months, ending, going through the first chapter of Acts and going through John in the last chapters of John. And we saw the details and the horrible conditions that Christ was under in order to die for us on the cross of Calvary. It's not only was he physically uh, just, just horribly beaten and terribly not just his heel bruised, but totally holes in his hands, nails in his hands and his wrists perhaps and his feet, bleeding, dying. But he bore the curse that we deserved and then part of that curse was being separated from the Father on that cross. Remember, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? And so we see still it pleased the Lord to bruise him for us because he loves us. And, and Noah read that verse. Thank you, Noah. He was made a curse for us. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That was a cursed way to die. It was for criminals. Christ is not a criminal. It was the will of the Lord. And this amazing statement is true because Christ was delivered up from the according to the definite plan of God, as Pastor Olson said. Acts 2.23. This is a very profound Bible verse. That really backs this up. Can someone look up Acts chapter 2, verse 23? 
This is predetermined, predestinated. I know that's a dirty word in even evangelical terms today because of all of the fighting between Arminianism and Calvinism and all. And But does Christ have the power, does our Lord have the power to predetermine and predestine these things? Acts 2.23 And look at that. Thank you, Jenny. Look how this all plays out. What prophecy did not come to fruition when the Lord predetermined and predestined it? Everything that he said perfectly came into being. Everything. You see this beginning portion of Isaiah 53.10, it points to the fact that Christ is our Passover. His blood painted on the doorposts of our heart that allows the death angel to fly past our souls so that we may live again in eternity with our immortal Savior. We see in 1 Corinthians 5.7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrifice for us. Do we see out in the public today, do we see any, uh, any, any signs or any manifestations of man's works being sufficient? Do we see that today in any type of churches or evangelical ranks at all? I mean, we can name them. Anybody have any ideas or any examples? Lisa. Well, there's all kinds of works-oriented theologies out there today. You know, you hear the old song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I hear many times when I'm listening, and I, you know, I guess I'm getting, we can get in trouble for naming names, but I've heard David Jeremiah say it. I've heard Tony... What's his name, Tony? What's, his, what's the guy? Tony Evans, I've heard him say it. Jesus is just waiting to come into your heart if you would only open the door and let him in. He's not waiting for anything. <laughs> I can promise you that. Lisa and then Lisa. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah, that's down there at that Luther. Yeah, I've seen that. Right. Right. Yeah. That's all, Lisa. Go, go ahead. Are you done? I don't, I don't want to cut you off. Go ahead. Because I'm, I'm going to get back to that because I saw a couple other good ones. <laughs> you want to call them good. Lisa. Right. Salvation plus works, right. 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 That's right. 
Well, look at how many today. I mean, it's like what uh, these signs Lisey's talking about. There's one I saw last week right down the road from my house that says, oh, please enjoy this Sunday the, the, and have your, bring your pet and have your pet blessed. That's another, another church doing that now. Pet blessings. Bring your church at 10 o'clock and we'll bless, the, bless them. What good is that going to do? But bless your pet? I mean, I know we love our pets all, but you're going to bless them? On, a, on the Lord's Day, you're going to take your dog and you're going to have the priest bless your dog. I, I, you know, I don't even know where to go with that. I mean, where, I mean that's, I don't even, that goes well to the realm of a works-oriented theology. That doesn't make any sense at all. Lisa? Yep, it's Pentecost, basically, every Sunday afternoon at faith healing services at a lot of Pentecostal churches. I sadly experienced that myself when I was in my late teens. I saw it for myself. They believe, basically, the Holy Spirit's poured out by their, by their uh, request almost every Sunday. But if you get a little more, this gets a little more abstract and a little harder. What about those that you talk with and you try to tell them about Jesus and they say, but I'm good. I can get in on my good works. I've done good things. I've given to the local charities. Um, I've, I took a coat and I put it over a puddle for an old lady. She didn't fall in and helped her there and helped her walk her dog across the street. What about that? That's a big one. I'm good. I'm good. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Lisa. Who says any of us are good, right? And so that's, that's it. I remember, uh, I remember witnessing, we were, we were talking. I mean, you know, sometimes witnessing just kind of takes, it's, a, it's not even witness. it's kind of in a sense, it's not even like an objective to witness. I got into a conversation with a man years ago. He was 92 years old. I've, I've, I think I brought it up a couple times, but we just started talking. I don't know how we got on church, but he said he, was, he got into Roman Catholicism how he had been a Catholic his whole life, fine. There, I, you know, everybody has their religion. That, that's their business. I understand that. But then he started, it's when they hit, hit, hit theological points that it's hard to back away from that. And he starts asking about, as a Christian, well, what do you base your salvation on? Blood of Jesus Christ. He says, well, my whole life I've given over probably a couple million dollars to the Catholic Church. And I said to him, well, what does the Lord need your money for? It's his to begin with. Oh, he got furious when I said that. You can't, you cannot, I don't care if you're Catholic, Presbyterian, I don't care if you're Baptist, Mormon, I don't care what you are. You can't bribe God. That's bribing Him. That's, try, that's trying to get another back door with our money. He's the one that sent the Ark of the Covenant that was made of gold. He has all, He knows where all the gold is, He knows where all the money So today, that's basically a big thing. You give enough, and that's where a lot of these big, great, big edifices have been made. Look at the, the Basilica. On, you know, a penny in the coffer clings, a soul from hell springs, back in the 16th century. Money has played a big, big role in churches, hasn't it? You know, ask uh, Paula White. She's got two Gulfstream jets from a lot of her, uh, a lot of her like, radio shows and stuff. She's got Kenneth Copeland. He's, he's got two or three of them. It's about money. So that's another works-oriented theology. So here, what we're learning here in Isaiah is the Lord is teaching us that the sacrifice for us, the atonement is the blood of Christ, and it pleased the Lord. How could we think anything else could replace that? 
Why can't we just trust the Lord and thank Him? He sent His Son. What, we don't believe that He did it? Well, we know that He did. We see that, uh, we see that we, we, there can, this eliminates the error that Christ's atonement provides present-day physical healing for those who pray. That's what people think His atonement's about. That's what a lot of Pentecostals believe, that His atonement is for physical healing. And it's just something for, you know, for them to, to be, it's a convenience for them. We see when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand or in his ministry. In other words, another way of saying this phrase could be, the will of, Je- the will of Jehovah shall flourish in Christ's ministry. And we see the word hand in the Old Testament was a word for ministry. And David used it many times. He shall see his seed or offspring, those who come to life through Christ's death. John 12, 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if I die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He shall prolong his days. What does that mean? If we're talking about Christ's death, do you believe that there's anybody today that believe that Christ is still dead? Do you think there are any religions that believe Christ is still dead? That his body was stolen, it was moved? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's been a convenient excuse for many centuries to eradicate the the efficacy of Christ's crucifixion. It's been a real hinge point. They say that he didn't even do it. In fact, on the internet today, this stupid thing pops up all the time. There's 21 people who never really existed and Christ is one of them. 21 people that never existed. Christ is never one of them. What does it mean that he shall prolong his days? What do you think that means? That's important. Real important. Anybody? Well, let me, I'll give you a clue. We've been studying it. It's the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It was a big fight between them, but it's, of course, when Christ came along and they wanted to murder him, it's amazing how all of a sudden they started to become good buddies. You know? Yes. How could Christ's days be prolonged if he's dead? It says he's going to kill him. It says here he's going to bruise him. He's going to murder him. He's going to be murdered. He was murdered. When he was crucified, he was murdered. He was not justly killed. So if he was not justly killed for a crime that he, that he, a crime that he could have been convicted of, which they, none of them could convict him of anything, he was murdered. He was murdered. He's the first martyr of the Christian church on that level. He was the the first apostle, and he's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He went to the cross, and it should have ended there, shouldn't it? Isn't that what happens when someone dies? But it says he will prolong his days. That is a resurrection. That is, his days will be prolonged when he's three days in the tomb. He's not dead. Oh, no. And neither are you. You believe in Jesus Christ? This is nothing. Oh, we hang on tenaciously to every little breath. And of course we do. It's no fun. Nobody wants to die. And it's hard to go to funerals. Of course that's hard. But as a Christian, your days are prolonged because of Christ. Your days are prolonged. And that's just a little Hebraism to say eternally. Prolong your days. He shall prolong his days Christ's death is quite different from ours. When we die, we are cut off from our families for a time and children who are left for a season. When our Lord died, being immortal, He rose to glory, being immediately reunited with the Father and His seed, the church, He sees in heaven. 
He is omnipresent and he sees all his flock here on earth and he sees all who ever will be his flock. And I love the verses in John 17 where he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for those who thou hast given me, for they are, th- they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. He was praying for those that would be saved after he resurrected from the dead, went on the right hand of the Father thousands of years down after that. And he's praying for us. All mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. The will of Jehovah shall flourish in Christ's ministry. You know, one of Jesus' hard sayings is Matthew 5.20. Could someone read that, please? Matthew 5.20. We see in verse 11, He shall see of the travail of his soul. He shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. This perfectly plugs right into verse 10. He will take care of our sins. He will wonderfully wipe them away. And look at Matthew 5.20. And if you ever had a problem with this verse, which I did for a long time, (laughs) and I don't anymore because someone was kind enough to really explain to me what it meant many many times. This is a hard saying of Christ. If anyone could read that, please. Do you think any one of us here have ever exceeded the works of the Pharisees? Oh, they were incredible when it come to worship. <laughs> like one pastor I was listening to months ago said, one of the best neighbors you could have ever had would be a Pharisee. <laughs> they were nice people. They always wanted to do good things. They wanted to help you. They always wanted to show you how to do things and help you. Well, one thing you didn't mention is Jesus Christ to them. I've, I've been through that. I went through that about three years ago. There was this young family. They were non-Messianic Jews that live in Reisterstown, and the boy was getting into a lawn-cutting company. He wanted to make money. And he started asking me questions about mowers and stuff, and his name was Yehuda. Precious young, young boy. And I went down, and somehow we got on the topic of the Lord. And I said, let me ask you something, Yehuda. He was only 12 or 13 at the time. I said, do you believe in Jesus Christ? No. He said, oh, no. Do you believe he's your savior? And he said, oh, no. And I mean, he was dogmatic about that. I gave him a tract, and I told him about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he died for his sins and all, and I never heard from him again. He must have went to his father, and the father probably was furious. I gave him a tract, and I told him, I said, please hold on to this, whatever you do. And he was, I was sad to see a little boy say that about Jesus, and that, and that's what it's like, but But the the incredible way that they handle the law, I mean, they get a bumper crop, 10% automatically. All of their crops, 10%, right down the line. Matthew. It was. Right. Right. But the question is, is that enough? Lisa has a hand up, and then, then Lisa. Go ahead, Lisa. That's a good point, Matt. Thank you.
Right. 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 That's right. Broken the Eighth Commandment. Yep. Right. Amen. Right. Right. So then that makes the law something that basically maybe that uh, those that follow the law, maybe they don't see that. Lisi. Right. Right. She said that she was saying how the law condemns us because we've all broken it. Well, think about that a minute. Basically, what the law does is it condemns us. The law condemns us. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. And I've listened to a lot of sermons on this. It condemns us. These are the things that we have done to defy God. So if you end it there, basically you go to the verse in, was it, John, John 3, I think it's 17, He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, for he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So if the law condemns us, and we're under that curse of the law, and you leave it there, what are we going to do with that? How am I ever going to save myself from what I've done against the Lord from there? Marianne. That's right. That's the next step. See, that was my next question. So, what Matthew said, if the blood covers us, are we responsible to do anything? Why can't we just sit back and say, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has covered all of our sins. 
I'm good. I'm good. Right. Yes. We're saved, but works follow. We still have an obligation in His name to do things in His name. Pastor Olson always talks tracks. I love that. You give tracks, you witness, you help somebody in the name of Jesus Christ. That changes the whole playing field. You don't do it for yourself. You help somebody and you say, they say, I want to give you money. I don't want money. Will you read this tract? And then you direct them to the Lord for their eternity. That changes the whole thing. Uh, Yes, spiritual joy. Right. That's right. We're not doing it for that. Matt, you had it seen up, then pastor. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Right. Right. But who is that sect of Christians? They call themselves Christians today that don't believe that. We'll look at that in a minute. Pastor and then Lisa. She's got her hand up too. Go ahead, Pastor. I'm sorry. Mandatory. It's not, it's not, you can decide if you want to do it or you don't want to. Right. That's right. And Marianne brought up a great point because if, if we don't have to do the good works and if we don't honor the Lord, then basically what we're saying is this new sect of uh, professing Christians. Let's see if you've heard this. Any, this is out there. I hear it all the time. This has been eradicated. That's the old law. It's a relic. But Christ now has died for us, so we just, under His blood, we can drink, we can smoke, we can do anything all the other people do, but we can just say, Jesus has saved me. We can do all the things to the people, we can be of the world and in the world, but we don't have to do anything. We have no responsibility to follow Christ. I'm sorry, Lisa, you've been waiting. I'm sorry, go ahead. Right. 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 Well, then what that means is, I mean, I'm trying to just bring this all together because the last verse says, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out a soul unto death and he bare the sins of many and he made intercession for transgressors. So right there, we see that Christ has made intercession for the transgressors. That means he has a job he's doing and if he has a job to do, we need to trust him to do it. And we need to, we need to 
We need to have our faith in Christ. The works do follow. Marianne's right about that. And what we have today are people called antinomianists. And if you sit back as a Christian and you say that's been eradicated, you are calling Jesus Christ a liar because he fulfilled the law. He, he, he lifted it up. And he proved that by not ever once sinning and disobeying one of those laws while he was here on this earth. He fulfilled it perfectly. And by doing that, what he did was he, he put that glow on it like Moses had when he came down from the mountain, which makes us so blessed in our hearts that we have this standard. I mean, the people that hate it, I don't get it. I mean, I don't know. I must seem repetitive. I know we've talked about this before, but you got people that hate it. They've taken it out of the schools. That's just stupid. Who wants their loved ones to be murdered? Who wants their bank accounts to be robbed and to be stolen from? Who want the, the real problem they have is the first four. That's what the problem they have with, because they don't even believe this, this, this being even exists. But just go to the last six commandments dealing with loving your neighbor. That alone should be enough to draw you to the first four. But they hate them. And that, that just befuddles me. Go ahead, Lisa. I'm sorry. Oh, I thought you had your hand up. I'm sorry. But, I, but getting back to what Marianne said and what Matthew had said, basically, we're saved. And we, why? Once we're saved, people call, why is the work of Christ such a burden? Why is it such a burden to help other people and do the work in the church and have the things that you do it for the Lord? And if you do it for the Lord, it's a blessing. Can we always do it? No. Is it always easy? No. But it's a wonderful joy that the Lord gives us. Lisa. Right. Right. That's right. Well, it says we read here, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. That's, that's, that's vital. For our eternal existence, for what we've learned about Christ, what's to me, I mean, to me in my heart, what's so vital about this is if there was nothing that would please the Lord and that the travail of his soul would not be satisfied, we would have no hope. And we were discussing last week about, the, about songs. What kind of songs should be sung in church to honor and worship the Lord? The Psalms. 
one of the pastors that we had, we, we had been considering and talking about spoke about how there's not enough lament in the songs anymore. Where you go into most churches, he, one, one pastor had said, well, pretty much they only believe that everyone today is only 28 years and under, and it's all music, like bar-type music, to, to really keep the young people sitting in the seats. There's no lament. There's no talk about that. There's no warnings about what's coming ahead. What do you do? Let your 28-year-old run, walk in front of a train and let him get hit? Because when the Lord gets done with the disobedience and the absolute flipping him basically in the nose on all these extremely important views today, and most young people, oh, you dare to say anything against the LGBTQ or the whole abortion issue or anything like that. There's many of them so wired and brainwashed, they don't even want to go there. But the thing is, is we, we learn about the efficacy of what Christ did and what we're learning about here. You know, it didn't say that Christ came into this earth in Isaiah 53 beginning and saying that he came in laughing and joking and high-fiving and having all kinds of sarcasm and jokes in all of his, uh, in his ministries. It said he was a man of sorrows, yet, yet acquainted with grief, and he hid as it were our faces from him. We hid as it were our faces from him. And his job was to turn our faces back to him. That's what his job was, and he did it with everything. He did it with his blood, he did it with his ministry, he did it with his time, he did it with everything, to the point where he even said, who is my mother? Who is my father? He said, the people that follow me, they're my family. They're the ones that I love. And even if my own brother hates me, he's not my family. And that's basically what he was saying here. And, you know, on a spiritual level, I mean, I'm not saying we go home today and if we have family members that don't love the Lord, we say, oh, you're not my family. I'm not saying that. That's our job to walk over glass, the works, the works, going to them and being a mission field to them and bringing them to the Lord. And we're here to discuss this together. If I'm wrong, if there's anything, please let me know. Because I think we're hitting on something extremely important here. This shall all be satisfied. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men to the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. This obtains the fruit of the death of Christ for the salvation of men. And our Lord Jesus Christ, He takes the highest delight in our salvation. He rests in our salvation as the fruit of His labor. John Calvin said, He who has obtained His wish, His ultimate desire for the fruits of His labor, rests in that which He most ardently desired, for no person can be said to be satisfied, but He who has obtained what He wished so earnestly as to disregard everything else and be satisfied with this alone. He did it for us. We see that his, by His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many to go back a little bit. And we'll have to finish with this because we're coming down to the wire here. But we, re, we read here in Mark chapter 15, verses 27 to 28. Look what He did. And with Him they crucified two thieves, the one on His right hand and the one on His left. And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, and He was numbered with the transgressors. So there He is on the cross... And Christ dying, did he, ever, did he stop working? If he doesn't stop working, why should we stop working? To this day, Christ is 24-7 on call, always working, working and working for us. 
And He's made intercessor. That intercessory prayer, we see John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, the intercessory work that Christ does for us shows the efficacy of His work, that He goes to the Father and He delivers up our prayers. So, doesn't that tell you that it's a wonderful blessing to be able to go in your own prayer closet and pray straight to Christ? Don't pray to me. Don't, don't go, don't down, do, do not go down to the confessional box. Do not pray to man. All men are sinners. You pray to Christ. And that's it. So we'll finish with that. And I'll ask Matthew, could you close us this morning? Thank you.